We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Stop Talk Radio, the world for people who think. Welcome to Soft Talk Radio. I'm Neil Bradley, your co-host tonight, Joe Quinn. And we're joined by Fiolas Cordon in the studio Bonjour. and Jason Martin. So Bonjour. we were going to have an interview today, a discussion with Finian Cunningham, um, journalist from Ireland. Unfortunately, we've not been able to get a hold of him. So we're going to go ahead and have this, the discussion we were going to have with Minion, and we might be able to get him on schedule for another show. Yes. We won't say anything bad about Finian just yet. No. Um, I think from what, I've, from what it says on his bio and what I've been able to know of him, he's, he's in East Africa somewhere, so perhaps he's currently out of reach. So um, He's gone AWOL on the dark continent. So, we're going to be talking, I mean, we're mainly preoccupied this week with what's been going on in Ukraine. I'm sure most of our listeners have as well. Um, It's still up in the air what's going to happen there. Events are unfolding as we speak, but it's quite clear already that um, there is, there's something going on here where they would like us to think that this falls into line with the revolutionary um, momentum that first began in the Middle East with the Arab Spring, and we've now seen it in countries across the world, including the U.S. and Western Europe. However, this, um, the more that comes out about what's going on behind the scenes in Ukraine, the more clear it becomes that this has got yet another neoliberal intervention written all over it. So... Um, yes, it does have <coughs> Western neoliberal intervention written all over it. Uh, one of the things Say that three times fast. One of the things that actually um, that's a hallmark for me of uh, that kind of intervention, which is you know making the intervention in foreign countries by essentially you know the evil empire. The Wall Street bankers and the, the globalists, as uh, Alex Jones would call them, um, is uh, events that happen, especially in the context of some kind of a popular uprising and stuff, that um, that tends to tug at the heartstrings of gullible Western citizens. Um, you know, some kind of a video or some kind of a report where it's just like you can just hear this mass kind of outpouring of oh my god no from you know the civilized people of the world and suddenly they're all you know behind you know a certain group or a certain 
a certain movement within this uh, conflict within a country. I mean, one example was obviously the incubators and babies from the first Gulf uh, Turkey shoot uh, in 1991, where you had this completely manufactured story. The, that, the goal for that one, she was the daughter of the ambassador to yeah. Saudi Arabia. Yeah, and they had no no compunction with basically just getting her into Congress, I think, or it was a Senate hearing, whatever, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, getting her to <laughs> tell a lie about how she saw babies in incubators just thrown on the ground. She was crying and everything. And, I mean, geez, that was, that won, that won the, the, the public opinion war in that mm-hmm. single event, won the public opinion war uh, for if there ever was anybody in the U.S. or in particularly in the U.S., but in the Western world, against the first Gulf War, then that completely just uh, knocked them out of the park type thing. They were, they, were, they were no longer an issue, and it was full steam ahead, let's get those evil Iraqis. And it was complete fiction. And I mean, people shouldn't underestimate the, 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 the power of that kind of a thing. I mean, I saw on Facebook uh, a few days ago people I know um, spreading around a video. I am... Ukrainian, a YouTube video of this yeah. uh, pretty girl from Ukraine, <clears throat> just giving this sob story about, you know, you know, we want freedom, we want democracy, you know, look at me, I'm so pretty, shouldn't I have freedom and democracy, shouldn't you support it? And I mean, people I know are posting it, and, and, and people who, generally speaking, don't keep up with things, don't look too, too much into things, and this was, for them, this was the important thing to share about. This is what they got out of Ukraine, which was, mm-hmm. they're a pretty girl who wants democracy. We should support the people protesting. Oh, when you see that, democracy, yeah. you know? and when you see that kind of thing in this day and age, you should be immediately suspicious. I mean, it reminds us of the Coney 2012 thing that we discussed back in 2012 as well, which was just when it's dripping with that kind of emotional manipulation, and you feel yourself being pulled for some unknown reason to support a particular grouping, and you. Yet, if you stop for a minute and realize that you have no freaking idea about what's really going on, but suddenly you find yourself with a strong opinion on it, you know you've been manipulated. So, you know, get with the program, people. I, or yeah, that's stop similar. going with the program. Well, similar to what uh, happened. So she, <coughs> excuse me, with the, remember the story about the stray dogs? The Russian authorities were going to kill thousands of stray dogs because of the Sochi Winter Olympics. You see the recurrence of the same modus operandi in emotional event, usually fabricated mm-hmm. by the PTBs, used to hysterize the population and to make them accept things uh, they would usually not accept. Yeah, well, that was that was in particular just a, a direct attack on on Putin, and it was just sour grapes. I mean, they don't even want the West doesn't even want Putin to get any kind of kudos in, on the international stage from from funding or from hosting something like uh, something as as innocuous essentially as the as the Winter Olympics. You know, you think that's just that's gonna have to do with politics, but it's got everything to do with politics because they immediately tried to make sure that he did not benefit in any way from it by turning the entire Western media against him and doing things like that. You know, really petty bullshit things. They're killing doggies. I mean, you know, that's a report on the Winter Olympics. They're killing doggies and all sorts of other smear campaigns and stuff. It was so yeah, they they went after faulty plumbing, yeah, water <laughs> contaminated water, and yellow water. Gay rights. We we talked about a couple of weeks ago. The dog issue. 
Uh, hold on. I got two things to say on that BS right there. First of Let's all, hear it. on the front page of MSNBC is a news story that Arizona has just passed a bill allowing um, institutions to discriminate against specifically it's specifically targeted against gays and transgender people and benefits because of basically a bunch of Christian groups complain that they should be able to not have to serve in any capacity any person that they find out is homosexual or transgendered or involved in any sort of uh, a thing like that right that's story number one. The second story on the MSNBC front page as of like two hours ago was that the New Jersey City water, New Jersey water is so toxic that it's actually dangerous for you to bathe in it. So like pot kettle black right there. <laughs> well, that's that's been right there. Pot kettle yeah, black. but that's been all over the whole thing. I mean, oh, yeah. in terms of Obama's, you know, and uh, what he called William Hague and the British William Hague and Obama's speeches or comments on Ukraine, it's just been the the hypocrisy just, and just remember, ripping from it and it's just like how anybody can take them seriously. Obama got elected on a platform of a pretty girl who wanted change. Obama girl. That was the, the big sensation of his campaign that was totally organized in my opinion by his campaign and it was basically a pretty girl dancing in scanty clothes who wanted change. <laughs> you know, I mean, and that was... About calling the cattle black... While the U.S. were bashing Putin and uh, emphasizing petty details about the Sochi Winter Olympics and those stray dog stories who were going to be killed allegedly, at the same time, the U.S. authorities were killing the umpteenth death row inmate, the fifth female inmate, and uh, a male inmate roughly at the same time with a new drug, new injection, a new toxin because they got out of stock of the usual toxin, you know, lethal injection, but it failed and the individual agonized for 26 endless minutes. So the same country that bashed Putin because allegedly we kill stray dogs was physically torturing a human being. Hold on a second. There is now a class action lawsuit from Angola prison. Robert King is, is involved in this. Basically, I think he was... There was there were people in there that were they were basically part of like the Black Panther Party or something like that, and they had killed a prison guard probably in self defense. And one of these guys was in solitary confinement in a six by nine by twelve foot room for forty one years, twenty three hours a day. I mean that's torture. That's cruel and un- unusual punishment that takes place in a forty one years. Forty one years. But they spend his life in a concrete box. In solitary confinement. That means twenty three hours a day. And the only time he got outside of the room was one hour where he was put in a cage and wasn't even allowed outside. So you're talking about, this is, this is America. I didn't even know that shit happened in America. I was like, I thought that was illegal. But apparently, American prisons really do put people in solitary confinement for like 40 years. That's just messed up. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure uh, the, the death penalty's been made illegal in Russia. Mm-hmm. And most civilized countries, because yeah. of course it's not effective at all in, as a deterrent, and yeah. it's really just no, no. Uh, See the level of, of crime rate in the U.S. There's death penalty, and crime rate is uh, is pretty high. It's yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean uh, the use of the electric chair in the U.S. is probably, as far as I'm concerned, the most bar- barbaric uh, way to kill someone. Yeah, that's killing is is happening. I mean, you know. <clears throat> 
it's a, you know, they put a hood over his head and stuff. But somehow it's presented as being more humane or something, but and hanging, for example, is worse. But it's like the electric chair is probably the most premeditated form of murder you can get in terms of the whole... Orchestration of the matter? Yeah, in terms of official murder type thing, you know. Uh, the premeditation involved in the electric chair is, right. is, is horrible, you know, right. because, I mean, it's... Uh, I mean, you know, the, the kind of planning that goes into it and the last meal and, and the people there to watch and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's... And then the, the horror of the actual killing itself is far worse than just oh, yeah. snapping someone's neck and hanging. But hanging, like, for example, in Iran, is to cry every time anybody's hung in Iran uh, for murder or for whatever. You know, I mean, it's just the hypocrisy is just across the board everywhere. I'm right. talking about hypocrisy in, in, in Ukraine, but I couldn't believe. Like, I mean, it's got to the point where they don't care anymore. They really do not care because they seem to think that people don't remember or people aren't listening or people are believing their bullshit. Like we, a couple of weeks ago, we had that uh, tape from uh, the U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for screwing up. Uh, Eastern European countries. Yeah. That's her official title. Yeah. Uh, Barbara Newland. Yeah. Uh, uh, Victoria Newland. Victor- Victoria Newland. Yeah. Uh, she's the one who's renamed the EU uh, FTEU. Uh, I think we're going to adopt that from now on. FTU. FTU. FTU, yeah. FTU to Bar- uh, Victoria. And she, so she's, she's there. She's the chief. Uh, Assistant Secretary of State uh, for screwing up Eastern European countries and making them free for exploitation by international so this bankers and industrialists. And she was, we had her on the, on the show a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> although she didn't realize She was it. great. She was great. We, we should get her back. Um, her telephone conversation with uh, Lackey, her Lackey in Ukraine, the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, uh, who has a funny name, Payat or something, the two of them were on this conversation talking about who's going to be in the next Ukrainian government mm. and how this guy was no good. We want this guy and let's get this done. Let's get the deets fixed. Let's get the details fixed in this and, you know, a, a, a lockdown. And and so that was probably like two weeks ago. And within yeah. two weeks, uh, you had these protests, more violent protests in, uh, in Ukraine. And you had Obama standing up in front of the world and saying that we, this is not about some kind of Cold War strategy or anything against Russia. This is about... Uh, us wanting to secure uh, the right of the Ukrainian people to choose their own uh, government and not be ruled by anyone. And I mean, I'm just like, really? Did that did, I, did that not happen? Did I not hear that conversation? Was that not all over the news? And of course, it kind of wasn't all over the news in terms of what was actually happening in, the, happening in that conversation, what the important points of that conversation between those two idiots. Because what they... The newspaper talked about was the fact that you said the EU mm-hmm. and the fact that the Russians probably had released it, and this was a new low in statecraft. In statecraft, this was a new low, and this is another thing. They, they decried the fact that the Russians had released this, yeah. taped this, this conversation, or released it, and this comes hot on the heels of the whole Edward Snowden and NSA spying on the frickin' world. I mean, seriously? I mean, at what point do you go, seriously? <laughs> yeah. Are you, are you there was effing joking me, Barbara? The US, Victoria? Uh, something else about Victoria Nolan is that uh, she went to Ukraine quite frequently at the beginning of the events, quote-unquote. And uh, actually, <clears throat> she visited Ukraine, met some of the leaders of the opposition and some other leaders 
in Ukraine only three weeks before the beginning of the demonstration and the riots. So one could wonder to what extent Victoria Nuland and the U.S. State Department has been instrumental, active in the staging, the creation of this uh, so-called rebellion and opposition movement. We don't, have to, we don't have to wonder. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm, what I'm saying. It's what like what Joe said. We don't have to wonder. I mean, this seems to me like imperialism, business as usual, 101, last 2,000 years, nothing new. I mean, this same type of thing, Niccolo Machiavelli writes about it, where they, Italy went to the king of, uh, of France, got him in there, wanted to take out some political rivals, and then he ended up basically taking over and took him forever to kick him out. So, I mean, this is the same kind of situation. It's... What I think probably happened is the U.S. just jumped on an opportunity that probably came about by his opposition party. It was like, hey, we're not getting any more of the money from this oil that we've been siphoning off, and he stopped it, so let's kick him out. Who can we get to help us? Well, the U.S. is willing to throw some money around and destabilize the country, so they went there, said give us some money. U.S. did. Bada boom, bada bang. You have a, a faked revolution. Here's, well, here, here's a rough timeline of what happened. Um, last November, in the background, I mean, for years, really, the, the Ukraine economy is, I mean, it's craft, it's, it's one of the few Eastern countries that has yet to, I don't want to say it's yet to develop, because, I mean, the Eastern countries that have joined the EU, nothing's changed there. Anyway, there were negotiations going on between Russia and the EU about what to do in Ukraine's situation. It was artificially brought to a head last November when Washington and Brussels gave the president, Yankovic, a, an ultimatum. They were the ones who forced this issue by saying, you choose the EU now or Russia. There was no need for this urgency. It was an artificially created sense of urgency. That's what precipitated the protest. Putin replied, and it was carried in some media, but no one knows because it wasn't spread enough. Putin's answer was basically, why now? What's the urgency? The Ukraine is having elections, presidential elections next year. He said, why don't we all work together on what to do about Ukraine's situation? Together. Why force it into either EU or Russia? They're, they've artificially made this into this kind of, you're with us or you're against us. Scenario. But that's because they fundamentally don't trust the democratic process. No. The, the Americans don't trust the democratic process that would have happened in the elections later on this year. So they wanted to push it and they had been planning it for a long time. This goes back a lot longer than just last year. This goes back to, well, it probably goes back into the 1990s and um, in terms of planning for Eastern Europe and the kind of former Soviet states that, that, that fell away from the Soviet Union. Um, and of course, we know what happened to Yugoslavia. They just bombed the crap out of it and incited ethnic conflicts. So they could divide it up into small states, um, and they've had the same plan for the Ukraine. It's a bit further away, so you know it took took a while. But they had the Orange Revolution, which was entirely U.S. funded yeah. and sponsored in 2004, um, when you had Yushchenko, uh, but. You know, it, there, was a, there was a whole mess between 2004 and 2010 when the current president was elected uh, between Yushchenko and um, Timoshenko, which is this uh, woman who's been in prison. 
and she's basically an oligarch. And I mean, she was kicked out. She was defeated in 2010 by the current president, by the guy who's just kind of fled, as they say, uh, because everybody knew that she was a, a corrupt money-grabbing oligarch. And now her picture is flying above the central square uh, in, in Kiev. You know where the protesters are? She, um, I'll just give you an idea of what she did. Uh, in the late 90s, before she led, she co-led the Orange Revolution with uh, Yushchenko. She was the president of Ukraine's United Energy Systems, which was a privately owned importer of Russian natural gas into Ukraine. And she was accused by Moscow of illegally selling enormous quantities of stolen Russian gas and avoiding tax on the sales and, you know, enriching herself massively during the late 1990s. And she got the nickname the Gas Princess from that. And she was also accused of having given her political patron, who's former Prime Minister Pav- Pavlo Lazarenko, kickbacks in exchange for her company's stranglehold on, the, on his gas supplies. And he was sentenced in pr- to prison in California, where he, still, where he still is, for extortion, money laundering, and murder. So she's actually implicated in murder as well. Um, and yet, like I said, this woman's picture is hoisted above the, the, the freedom and democracy kind of uh, protesters, supposed freedom and democracy protesters in the middle of the, of the, of the square in Kiev. It's, it's kind of ridiculous. And, you know, so this whole mess between, uh, and, and this guy Yushchenko, who was her co-partner in the Orange Revolution, he, previous to that, he was basically the, the chief or the head of the central bank in in Ukraine in the late 1990s and into 2000. And uh, he initially, uh, he was the one who <coughs> spearheaded the introduction of <coughs> or allowing the IMF to get its dirty fingers on the Ukraine uh, by way of a big loan that then they have to impose. These. The way the IMF works is they come into a country that's in financial difficulties and says, listen, we'll give you a big loan, at a, you know, high, high rate of interest, but uh, we don't really trust that you're able to pay this back, so we're going to have to take control of your economy to make sure that you can pay this back. And obviously the way you're going to pay it back is through taxes. So we think that you're not really raising enough taxes and you're spending too much money on these people. You know, what do you call them again? Yeah, your population. Fodder. So uh, we need you to stop spending money on them and get them, and at the same time get them to pay more taxes so that you can pay back this loan that we've given you to fix the country. It's totally convoluted and totally contradictory, the whole idea of it, but it's... You know, for some reason, governments are forced to, are, are, are made to believe that it's the only way. And when he did that in the middle of uh, the 90s, uh, in, in Ukraine, the price of bread increased overnight by 300%. Electricity went up 600%. Public transportation, 900%. Standing, the standard of living collapsed. And uh, by 1998, um, Real wages had fallen by more than 75%. Now, this continued on through. And this is what supposedly the people, the protesters in, in, um, in Ukraine and in Kiev are complaining about is one of the things they complain about is, apart from corruption and stuff, is, uh, you know, not enough jobs and low wages and this kind of thing. But that's a direct result of this uh, Yushchenko guy who was the partner of this uh, Timoshenko, the woman, and now they are kind of back flavor of the month, and her 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 picture is up in, on, in the middle of the square. So I mean, it's it, the whole thing is just so contrived and so ridiculous yeah. that I think what we've got here is is a couple of factions. We've got the faction that's been described so ably 
by the U.S. Assistant Secretary of State, um, Victoria Newland, which she listed off, well, we want, who do we want? We want Yats, Kishko, and a third guy who's the... Tannibok. Tannibok is the head of the Freedom Party, which is basically fascist. And they'll do. But yeah. that, that but, leads out mention of Tomyshenko. Um, now, what's happened since then, is things are changing day to day. Joe mentioned this woman's um, sort of a, po- a huge post of her being raised in the square. I've noticed that a lot of the photos of protesters, they're holding up. Someone has gone to the trouble of making of Tomyshenko with her Timoshenko with her sort of trademark braided blonde hair mm-hmm. uh, tied up um, with prison bars broken free. Mm-hmm. They've mass produced them and they're being handed out in the yeah. square. Very convenient. Yeah, but this is like um, I think this is another faction coming in yeah. trying to position themselves because the U.S. haven't mentioned her. <clears throat> now, what's happened in just yesterday, in fact, the the parliament uh, officially decided to impeach President, I've forgotten his name, Yakushenko, um, and, and they say, instead voted in an interim president who's the current head of, he's the current speaker of the parliament. This is a guy called Alexander Churichnov. Now he represents the Fatherland Party, which is Timoshenko's old party, and he, he, he was her um, head of security, basically head of the intelligence services in 2004 in the color revolution. So they, they now have a little coup. I mean, the latest position on the coup is that Timoshenko's group have taken control of the reins, at least temporarily. Mm-hmm. And she's announced that she'll run in elections that have been called for May 25th. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. authorities and the European authorities claim that they have prepared a financial package to the IMF to save, quote-unquote, uh, Ukraine. And as you said previously, the, Ukraine, the U.S. don't trust elections because they know that the Ukrainian people know about the IMF bill. Because after the Orange Revolution, the IMF policy was applied, and in addition to the measures that were previously described, there is also the pre- IMF is a deal. We lend you money, you won't be able to pay back because of interest rate, but in exchange of this loan, you have to accept an ideology. And part of this ideology, in addition to the destruction of the public sector service, is the privatization of resources, i.e. giving the local resources, human, mining, everything, to private corporation. And uh, Ukrainian people know what it, where they need to do. So I suppose that uh, their memory is not so short, and they, they know the destructive effects yeah. of such ideology. Yeah. They're being railroaded, though. They're being railroaded by these protests, and the, the key factor in, in pushing through these changes that have nothing to do with the actual will of the majority of Ukrainian people is to have uh, this kind of violence. Um, because that polarizes people and it also creates a kind of political capital for the rest of the world or for the interested parties to say, listen, something has to be done about this. There's an outcry. This, this killing has to stop. We have to do something. That forces the issue. And I'm, I'm fairly convinced that, that the violence that occurred was 
completely uh, manipulated and, and you know it was scheduled, it was programmed, it was planned because normal people, when they want to protest their government, generally do not spontaneously break into mass violence where they start burning buildings and, and, and you know wrecking the place and attacking cops and stuff. Um, I mean, you saw the Wall Street. Uh, the Occupy Wall Street movement, and yeah. I mean, compare and contrast. Exactly, you know, it's peaceful, and that's what people generally do. Unless, and I mean, there's a, you could say that people won't get violent unless, for example, when they peacefully protest, which is naturally what they'll do, or they'll have nationwide strikes or something like that. But when that kind of peaceful protest is responded to extremely violently by the state forces, if they can get the security forces to, you know, beat heads and shoot people and stuff, uh, then you might have a violent reaction from the ordinary people. But you have to provoke them and they have to be seriously provoked to engage in the serious violence that you've seen in Ukraine. And, but even then, on, in most cases, when peaceful protesters, protesters are attacked like that, they will not respond with violence. They'll be too cowed and too afraid. That's a kind of a really tyrannical, authoritarian, totalitarian government. Uh, and, and people will just, essentially, after that, there's no more protests because people know that you're going to die if you protest. So it's only in a, a kind of a uh, fairly open society that people will either go out and protest and generally speaking there won't be uh, the situation where police and security forces will start shooting them they'll be allowed to protest so where does this violence come from in in in, in well in Kiev's really only yeah. this, this extreme violence and you notice that in the first few weeks of that where it was becoming violent all of the violence was coming from the protesters towards police police were not responding they were getting set on fire by Molotov cocktails. They were getting their heads beaten. I mean, it was it was bizarre, and I'm sure it hardened a lot of people who were like, you know, fight the power, yeah, power to the people and stuff, uh, to see, you know, ordinary people grabbing cops and you know, throwing them around and beating them and burning them and stuff. But that's not normal. I mean, you, you, you're going to tell me that could happen anywhere in Western Europe or in America? That would not. I mean, generally speaking, in those kind of conflicts, the protesters come off worse, a lot worse, and it doesn't last very long. Because you know, if you know, if uh, if a bunch of Americans were, for example, marching on Congress and had blocked the entrance to Congress to stop people, to stop uh, Congress and congressmen and senators from getting in, and if they were marching on the White House, do you and think they started firing in the windows? If they started shooting, and what stuff, do you think Obama would say? Obama would say, "Just let the, they're expressing their freedom let and democracy. Withdraw your security forces." That's let what he was telling them. Withdraw. He was telling the Ukrainian yeah. president, "Do not respond to this." Uh, yeah, and that would happen. What would you do, Obama? You know, well, let's just look at the Occupy Wall Street. What happened? I mean, across a hundred cities in one night, there were heads beaten in, and the whole thing was gone through police violence towards the protesters. And they weren't even anywhere near any official government buildings or sitting outside mm -hmm. banks, private banks. And when you read the, the reports by mainstream medias during the first riots, the first demonstration, you see the mainstream medias only mentioned it was very violent. 100 people got injured. And they didn't give break down the figure. And when you dig some more, you realize that actually most of the wounded people was on the side of, <coughs> of the police forces, mm -hmm. and, uh, which is uh, indeed very unusual and which shows, it, even when you see the pictures, when you see the pictures, you see those guys, those demonstrators, they're not demonstrators, you see them fully equipped, they have uh, protection, they have helmets, they have guns, firing real bullets. These are not 
demonstrators, protesters. These are agent provocators funded by uh, Western uh, forces to establish a, a coup d'etat. Yeah. So, um, they, yeah. They think they can control this, but to quote the moderate leader of the opposition, Yats, as Victoria Newland called him, he said, we've lost control. We've lost control of this situation. We don't know who they are and what they're doing. Across, across Ukraine, people are tearing down statues of Lenin, for example. Mm. Okay. He was an evil tyrant as well. I take deep down a statue by all means. In their place, they're painting logos of swastikas and white power symbols. Yeah. This is the element that's coming to force in Ukraine. Yeah. Like in the parallels with Syria striking. The modus operandi is basically the same. You have the Western forces, powers, who want to take control of this piece of land, usually because of resources, and because there is a democratically... Democratically? <laughs> yeah, elected uh, government that obviously doesn't serve the interest of Western powers. They have to, to further coup. And for that, they infiltrate the country, they create bogus operations, they distort the fact, they have all this propaganda. And... <laughs> In Syria, like in Ukraine, you see that those extremist groups funded and uh, created in some cases by the Western forces g can get out of control because these are mostly psych groups, extremist groups that are led by psychopathic individuals. In Syria, you see those extremist groups fighting against each other. And in Ukraine, there is uh, the same. You don't have this internal consistency there. They're in for their own interest. They don't have the the interest of the country at heart, well, no, I mean, which could bring them really together. They, they've really they've really screwed themselves in so many ways. Historically speaking, like I said before, I mean they've just made probably about the number one mistake you can ever make as a country: don't get somebody else to help you with a coup d'état. That's like a really bad idea historically. It's never worked, and it, it has always turned against them. I think there's a double crossing going on, like with this Timinchenko or whatever name, whatever she is. I think that uh, it's kind of like a double cross situation. I think that one group yeah. of people was like, oh, let's have a coup d'etat. And then she said, boom, out of prison. What's up now? And it's kind of like taken over it. She shows up in a wheelchair, does all this press stuff. Suddenly posters of her appearing, probably because she paid to have them printed and put up. And then she's all like, no, I won't take over now. I don't want to be connected with that. I'll run for presidency later. But the guy who's currently in charge is basically like her gimp who is a former, like, intelligence guy. I mean, it just smells yeah. of double-cross yeah. plan. And, and the double-cross uh, <laughs> is also shown by the leaked conversation between uh, U.S. authorities and this uh, U.S. ambassador, FDU. So, basically, yeah. even within the, the leading Western powers, you have dissension. There's, you have the EU pulling one. one direction, U.S. pulling the other direction. There's, well, there's another one between the EU and the U.S. brought up by... Stephen Cohen, a New York University professor, he suggested that the reason why this ex-boxer, this big Ukrainian guy, is in there at all is because that's a, a Merkel project. That's Angela Merkel's doing. Yeah. He's yeah. resident in, the, in Germany, pays his taxes there, yeah. and he was airlifted in by Merkel to, I don't know what, uh, have some say in, in how Ukraine would go. But you see, the thing hanging over especially over, over Germany, but for the whole of Europe, is that uh, Putin has done it before, and he may do it again. He may cut off the gas, yeah. and that threat is permanently there. And you've got, yeah, you've got people vying for power and 
vying for economic interests in Ukraine with a view to carving it up, but they're also trying to balance this. It's, it's a fear of Russia at the end of the day. It, it, they have, they're so paranoid about Russia because they're afraid. Yeah, we'll get to them in a minute. Hang on, we got a call here, so I'm going to go ahead and take it. Hello? Hi. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Yeah, my name is Charles from uh, Missoula, Montana. And hey, uh, you hey, guys are... What's that? No, just saying hi. Oh, yep. Uh, anyways, you guys are doing great. I, I, but, you know, I just have this question, uh, maybe you can throw into this conversation, is why the president uh, didn't uh, get more aggressive on stopping this. You know, I was... Uh, in high school during the Vietnam War, and I protested in Washington. And what a lot of people may not know is uh, these doors opened from the underground, and cops came in single file, two rows of single files, cops coming out of the ground, you know. And um, <clears throat> so here's sort of the question. Uh, you know, in the United States, you have this thing called continuancy of government or whatever. You know, if, yeah. if the people rise up, they have underground bases and all that crap, and they, they, they run the uh, government regardless of what the people want, right? So what what's going on with Ukraine? Uh, the president, I mean, he used so much restraint. You know, we're, I'm uh, totally on, on <clears throat> top of what you guys are saying, the whole hypocrisy and, you know, the drone drone killing Obama saying use restraint. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's a farce. Well, but that's my question. But, but just to ask you a question, right? Yeah. To turn, turn it around. Imagine the same situation was happening in America, right? Exactly. And Obama was trying to do something. And Obama was trying to do something, and it turned out that the Speaker of the House was working for the Russians the whole time, right? <laughs> and all yeah. of a sudden, and he's in there working to undermine the authority because the president – the president picks up a phone. He makes a call to somebody who makes a call to somebody. 5,000 people probably get called before a police officer actually gets deployed. It's not like he's going in the streets to enforce stuff, right? So in between yeah. that chain, what if that, 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 that turncoat speaker of the house who's working for the Russians and has his little cadre of people and his whatever interests is usurping right. that power? So, I mean, the president can't get an M16 and go out and police the public anyway. Well, you see? Well, I don't know what you're saying there. What I'm well, saying is that it's obvious that there were people inside of his own government that were usurping any possibility that he could have done anything anyway. Well, I, yeah, I don't, that's one I'm, possibility. It's possible, but I, um, I tend to think that it was more, um, if you imagine the analogy of uh, you know, a cop <coughs> in, in, a, in a police station with a, with a suspect, and he puts a gun on the table and he says, pick up the gun. You know, or something along those lines. He's trying to provoke the guy right. into doing something that so that he can respond uh, and say, "We well, picked up the gun, so I had to beat the crap out of him." Yeah, right. Well, I understand. So what, I understand what, what the whole political, you know, the CIA, you know, game playing there. But uh, eventually, you know, after the restraint and everything else, and they're getting the crap beat out of them by these people, yeah. and they're showing restraint. Why didn't they eventually, or why is the parliament building so important? Why didn't they pull to some other area and keep governing the country? That's what I don't understand. Well, he may have done that. We don't know where he is. Yeah, exactly. He's going okay. to the <clears throat> he's going to the east. But yeah, basically, what, what I think what was going on was that uh, he was being advised by Putin, and Putin was saying, "Listen, you're being set up here." Uh, these yeah. protests, you've got to hold out for as long as possible because if you respond, yeah. that's exactly what they want. When you get violent, that's what that's yeah, be your downfall. They're going to they're gonna screw you. So he, he held back and held back and held back. But the problem then is how do you maintain a police force 
that are willing to go out and get the shit beat out of them indefinitely. It's not going to happen. Exactly. If, at some point, they're going to say, listen, we're not going to do this anymore, or we have to be allowed to respond. And so you saw that they did respond. That situation you know? doesn't play well. I mean, Putin's saying, because basically he's, he's getting shafted. His best play, and like say, for instance, if you're playing a game like this, your best play in that situation is to go in very aggressive which is what he didn't do because he wasn't able to. I do not believe but he, he did. But right. he did eventually go in very aggressive. No, you know, he, he shot, he shot he 50 people. Shot yeah. 50 people. Yeah. yeah, he should have shot 500. But there were no, snipers too, weren't there? There were snipers exactly, on the yeah. other side that, uh, you know, probably yeah. CIA funded, whatever. But, but yeah. uh, 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 were those people that died, were they, uh, 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 did they die by the, by the president's men, or were they people killed by the CIA well, you know, that's the question puppet. as well, you know what I mean? I uh, that happened in Venezuela yeah. or, you know, the opposition, mm. you know. It does look like police sniper team got yeah. out there just three days ago now. Yeah, that was, video was. But by then, the, by then, the bad PR that uh, the president would have been worried about in the West, too late. The, the place exactly. is on fire. Anything, anything he does at that point, he stands one way or another. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. exactly. The I hear, but I'm gonna, I'll get off the air here. Thank you. All right, all right, all right. Thanks, okay, Al. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. The factor you were, you were mentioning, Neil, I think it's important. The Ukrainian government lose whatever happens. If they exact, see how what happened in the beginning. They exacted restraint, amazing restraint, actually. And you see to what extent the media spin the twi- and twisted the facts yeah. and prevented the police forces anyway, yeah. as violent and uh, interject on that? Unjust. Yeah. You're applying so. the rules of protesters. You're applying a, a popular rule to a government, right? When protesters go in there and, the, like, say, for instance, in the civil rights movement, when the police were, like, beating them and fire hosing them and letting dogs on them and they weren't fighting back, you say you were showing a great deal of restraint. States don't act that way. They're neither compelled to nor do they need to act that way, right? When a state does that, you have to say there's no – because the police being set on fire by Molotov cocktails, there is no police force in, the, in, the, in any of the Western countries. In America, in America, they won't even – they will shoot you and arrest you for throwing back the tear gas canisters that they shoot you in the head with. If yeah. you throw them back, then all of a sudden they say, oh, they got violent, and then the rubber bullets and real bullets start flying, and they arrest you, yeah. right? I mean, that's yeah, the normal yeah, course. The thing, the, thing uh, is, the thing is that, you know, uh, it seems to me that given the events that happened, it's – it's more likely that he was trying to hold out and because he realized... For what purpose? No purpose. What? There can be no purpose. Because, well, they, they didn't know what way it was going to go. It was a very fluid situation. He didn't and, know I mean, exactly what way it was going to no, go. No, well, he suspected, but he, he, what was he going to do? I mean, he, he, he tried to not fall into the trap. They had already set him up as a demagogue, and he tried not to fall into the trap for a couple of weeks and then realized that it wasn't going to work, so he went ahead and did it anyway. So obviously the power was within his... It was within his power to tell the police and the the, Bur- the Burkat, uh, the, the special operations guys, to go in and start shooting people, and they did. I mean, they went in, and in a couple of days, yeah. they shot dead 40, 45 or 50 people. You know what I mean? And that was the end of it there. Yeah. That, that brought the, po- the protest to an end, but he realized that, like Pierre well, was saying, it was down if you do it and down if you don't, and, and, and then he left. And, and see, see, Putin is a, it's a good example. Putin was probably close to the Ukrainian government, maybe no still is. Putin during Nusochi games, he does this, the smallest mistake, or even no mistake at all. Mm. And all the medias will focus on, on this illusory mistake to depict the whole event 
as bad and negative. Well, that's another, so, that's another point is that this all happened right. exactly at, during the, the but, Winter Olympics, you know, and Putin's there and he's trying to grandstand on the stage of the international stage. I'm the, this kind of wonderful host of the Winter Olympics and, you know, Russia in a positive light. And everybody knows and everybody in the West has set it up that Ukraine and Russia are pretty much the same. Putin is best buddies with this Ukrainian president. He says, listen, you know, dude, you know, try and not cast us in a bad light here during my Winter Olympics. I'm trying, you know, I've, and it seems to be that within, I, within I a agree, few days, but, but what I'm just saying close to the end, because they end today. That theory, yeah. it doesn't hold any water, though, on the basis of the fact that if you're going to be seen as the bad guy anyway, you yeah. might as Do well it all be, the way. you might as well be positioning yourself correctly against your opposition from a political standpoint. Yeah, did there, if, you're gonna be, if they're going to call you a murderer... For not doing anything, then you might as well, you know, take off your opposition. Yeah, there's yeah no but, the, reason but, but no, but there's outside influence in the sense yeah. of, of course, in the sense of Putin controlling the situation. How um, do you do know, know that Putin was because, saying don't do it? Because I because I know the history of it, and I know the extent to which the well, two of them were are, you don't are know close what together. Conversation he had in, what no, conversations but, he had in public are not going to matter. Well, you know, one hang fact, on, hang one on. Fact, wait, 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 wait. Let me just go here first. So it's it's pretty complicated in Ukraine. Ukraine is pretty much split down the middle and has been before this particular crisis. For the president of Ukraine with a, let's say, 51% majority to do that, he's already inviting trouble from within, whatever about how it might look outside. Now, let's look at the specific timeline of events last week. Before the current state of affairs, it was looking very different. What happened was the, the violence in the city went up to an absolute fever pitch then the police sniper units came out and the police started shooting right away oh international condemnation people even ordinary people in ukraine said no 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 predictable result they have a truce and a meeting held that day with the at least two foreign ministers from i think from poland and some other european country and they come to a deal and the president agrees they made a deal on friday december Mm -hmm. we'll have elections by then I'll withdraw my forces, okay, and they have done. They're completely cleared. Kiev is basically a free zone. Uh, and the other part of the deal is the opposition parties would do whatever they could do to get the protesters to leave, to stop the violence and leave. That was the deal. Immediately, the very opposite happened. The protesters increased. The police withdrew. The violence increased. And that's where this new situation came in, where suddenly... There's a vote in Parliament. He's impeached. They, yeah, they exactly. completely they used that deal to buy a tiny exactly. fraction of time exactly. to completely betray it. Yeah. They, they betrayed the deal they made with the president. Exactly. Yeah, they voted him out of power, and he they, they betrayed the uh, trust. And he was going along, uh, basically calling over the two weeks of violence against the police by the protesters. He was going along saying, you know, just trying to be the the kind of peacemaker and trying to be the moderate and keep himself in a kind of good light type of thing because he. Uh, held out the possibility, the possibility was being held out that there could be some kind of a deal, right? So, I mean, he was then maybe... he's an idiot. Well, it was maybe wishful thinking or whatever, but ultimately, but, the, thing, the way it went down was that they did actually all sign an agreement. He sat down and signed an agreement, as Neil just described, but then within a few days, they turned around and went to the government, and the government voted, or the, the parliament, parliament voted yeah. to impeach him. Right. Yeah. You know, and then he... But now he hasn't officially left, he's gone. So the thing was very kind of... 
it was a real, there was a lot of details involved and it was very complicated and, and he ultimately was being screwed over. But what do you do in that situation? I mean, if he's just going to, the one thing he knew for sure was that if he came out and started shooting everybody and cracked down, he would be gone. The alternative was play the peacemaker and then, you know, maybe bring it to a head when it has to be and maybe get something out of it. So it's like he was basically weighing up the... Yeah. Uh, you know, the worst of us. I, I'm pretty sure, bad, Jason, but I'm pretty sure that Putin <laughs> is screaming at his people right now saying, this Yankovic is a complete idiot. He didn't do what I said he should have done here, here, and here. Right. He can't. He's lost control of the situation. Why didn't he do what you're suggesting much earlier on? I'm sure there's, I'm sure history will judge him and his mistakes. But uh, what, yeah, we're trying cool. to, what we're trying to impress here is the intensity of this situation and how difficult it would be for anyone to, to immediately know what has to be done. Okay, we've got, no, we've got no, another call here. because what, we, what here. should be done was Hang written on. down 300 years ago. Hey, caller, what's your name? Where are you calling from? Hello. I'm lying for a while. Hey, I'm just listening. Do, you're just listening. Okay. okay, you're just a listener. Listen, All right. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying is that what should have been done and what all other governments do, including the U.S., including every other country, including England, including France, what should be, there, there was no necessity, there was no unclear situation at the beginning of this, right? What is strange is that he didn't do it early and quick and, you know, like rip the tape off, cut the amputate right away. Because the only reason, and you said it, you said he's only got 51%. He didn't have the power. He didn't have the control to do anything, which is basically what I was saying is that, Ultimately, within his own government, he did not have any, any power whatsoever. He was not able to do anything or affect anything. And also, as it sounds like, he is an idiot and was incompetent. Uh, uh, as democratic and wonderful as he is. I understand what you say. And you may be right. I, I don't know. It's open. He are not trying to, to take the defense of the ex-president or the pr president of <laughs> Ukraine, but trying to understand the reasoning. I think at least in Western countries, a lot of what is going on is based on perception management and illusion of democracy. And this is conveyed and managed mostly by mainstream media. So to maintain this democratic illusion, you have to apply to some extent some, rule of, some rules of fairness, of justice and proportionality. As you pause, that the Western medias were waiting, they were in the starting block, waiting for the first, for the, the slightest mistake from the committed by the Ukrainian movement, uh, government to be able to bash it, but not bashing it for bashing it, to bash it in order to prime the Western public opinion really... to accept the fiercest measure possible while, while preserving this proportionality principle. Yeah. I mean, for me, the point is that it was, he, he clearly understood that he wasn't that stupid in the sense that you'd have to be really stupid to not realize the forces reigned against you. And I mean, there's a whole history, there's a 10 or 15 year history of Western involvement and meddling in Ukraine. And he was right there in the middle of it all. And he knew about the Orange Revolution 2004 and he was involved in that. And he was actually, they actually forced a recount of an election that he won in, in 2004. That was part of the Orange Revolution where they, and this, this was to do with these kind of uh, foundations, Western foundations like um, 
you know, the National Endowment for Democracy, and uh, there's one in Ukraine called Poor Youth, and uh, in Serbia there's Oppor, various different groups that have been involved in these revolutions <clears throat> in the Middle East as well, or in, um, in Egypt and Tunisia, and they used those groups <clears throat> to, to fuel this 2004 um, Orange Revolution where the current president uh, won an election and then they called for a recount claiming all sorts of uh, uh, vote rigging and not only that but they also have these groups that come in and set up uh, polling uh, operations where they release uh, exit polls and they can manipulate exit polls so that it looks like uh, they, you know, fake the exit poll so it uh, sway it in favour of the, uh, the the person they want in power, even though the other guy wins, and then they say, ah, this doesn't agree with the exit polls, it must have been vote-breaking. And they actually got him booted out in 2004, and Timoshenko and Yanukovych in a coalition in, in 2004 as part of the Orange Revolution. So he was well aware of this kind of yeah. stuff going on. And so he sees the same thing, exactly the same thing happening again uh, by the same groups. And you know you're screwed, you know, and you're you're in a you're being democratically elected. You're this is a, a democracy, you know, and there's there's demonstrators and stuff, and they're just waiting for you to do something to make your uh, your presidency uh, your position completely untenable. I mean, they've already set it up that you just have to pick up that gun. So uh, for me. It seems reasonable enough that he that the, the, this two-week hiatus on any response from the police was ordered because police will generally follow orders. Was ordered by maybe by him or by someone in the government and say, "Listen, you know, don't fucking shoot anybody for God's sake, because that's the end of me. If if you shoot anybody, that's all they need." And so it it it, it lasted for a while, but like I said, you can't keep that going very long. Because you're not going to have a police on the streets anymore. Police are going to go, screw you. I'm not going out there to get fucking doused in petrol and set on fire yeah. or shot at. And so then the question is, okay, you know, do something about it. Uh, bring it to a halt. And so then, you know, 50 people get shot and that's the end of it then. And then, okay, let's, now we can go for negotiations. He's there, he's there okay, at least now we've brought it to a head. Let's have some negotiations. You know, chances aren't good, but whatever. And then, yeah, you're booted out. But he was always going to be booted out. So... You know, I mean, he's not, I don't think he, he's not this demagogue. The thing is, he's not this vicious, evil dictator who, you know, ruled with an iron fist like they presented him. He was democratically elected two, uh, four years ago, you know? Uh, so. Yeah. And elections are coming up in one year's time. Yeah. But they couldn't allow that to happen. Why? Because they're afraid of democracy? Because yeah, they're afraid he'd be reelected. They want somebody specific. And here, here's, like we talked about earlier on about the whole, the interest. And I think there's a, a dive, uh, a diversion or a difference in the interest between the Americans and the Europeans. As uh, Victoria Newland said, fuck the EU. The Americans don't give a shit about the EU, right? The EU's interests primarily are in, uh, like you were saying, Neil, about they're slightly afraid of Russia in the sense that uh, a quarter of uh, Europe's gas comes from Russia and comes through the Ukraine. And they can twist that off. Although, they can't switch it off so easily because they're going to lose a lot of money from switching mm. off, right? So, but there's this, there's that kind of game to be played there. So they want to keep Russia to some extent online, but America doesn't care about uh, European gas from Russia. And what America cares about is 
um, apart from the general strategy of you know getting into a country and making it free for you know international corporations to come in and loot the place and the IMF to come in and just to just to get it as enough. But strategically and militarily, they want to kind of screw Russia yeah. over. They want to stop Russia being anything like any kind of a, anything closely resembling a superpower. America is the only superpower in the world, and that's what they want to make sure. Make sure want to make sure it stays that way. The Russians have their major naval fleet is in the Caspian Sea on Black Sea. Oh, sorry, the Black, Black sea, sea on yeah. Ukrainian territory yeah. at uh, Sevastopol. <clears throat> and it's been there since like, you know, 1890 or something like that. So if the Ukraine, this guy who wasn't in power was essentially neutral and pro or pro slash pro Russian, didn't want to join NATO, didn't want to join the EU, and therefore, the Russian fleet position in in uh, in the Black Sea in Ukraine was secured, and he was going to extend that lease, uh, you know, allowing them to stay. If a pro-American, a pro-European guy gets pushed in like they're trying to do right now, then they're going to cut that off because this Timoshenko woman has said, you know, uh, we can't have foreign military bases on Ukrainian <laughs> soil. It's like, what do you think is going to happen when you join NATO? Because she's, she's totally pro, pro-NATO as well. There's going to be American, etc., NATO military bases all over Ukraine. But, you know, so the, the, the Russians would lose their, their very strategic naval base, which gives them access to the Mediterranean, direct access to the Mediterranean through the Straits of Constantinople. Otherwise, they'd fuck. Uh, geostrategic and, and neutralizing Russia, that's the Americans' interest, neutralizing them from a, from an, I mean, they also have economic interests, obviously, as well. Thank you. All right, folks, we are cut off there with Block Talk Radio. As always, send your hate mail with Block Talk Radio. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so basically the Americans are happy to, they want to neutralize Russia from a military point of view, but they're also, they would also be happy to see Russia stop. This is kind of, you know, the Americans and the EU are all buddy-buddy and stuff, but ultimately, like uh, Victoria Newland said, F the EU, from the American point of view, it's weird superpower. And so they would be quite happy if, as a result of a breakdown in relations between Russia, and the EU, Russia, stopped getting that money from selling its gas to the EU if they cut off gas supplies. And the EU doesn't get its gas. Well, you know, as, as I say, you know, fuck the EU. Who cares? You know, but, and, and America achieves its two of its aims. One is, like, you know, economically neutralizing, to some extent, uh, Russia and also militarily. Yeah, well, I, I see what you're saying, but at the same time, this whole... Ukrainian thing is is a bridge too far for the U.S. Whatever their strategy is in there, it's a pipe dream. Yeah, well, because there's no way that Russia will ever give up strategic access to the Mediterranean for their navy. That's just. But that's and, and, people and, and let the U.S. and the EU be. That would be like uh, us letting somebody invade our front door and stand inside of it and like set up a bed. But that's what people are cool asking: down. Is this going to cause some kind of a war? It, yeah. yeah, I mean, and and see the dynamic geostrategically. If you were Putin, you look back just 20 years before, Soviet Union, control of most of Eastern Europe, most of Southwest, uh, ex 
Soviet Union, uh, ex-Russian Republic, and the territory shrinking and shrinking. And see, but the imperialist mind has no boundary, you know? They always wants more. Yeah. And uh, a few years ago, it was Georgia, target, and today is Ukraine. And for Putin, geostrategically, geostrategically, it's very clear. Ukraine, Georgia have direct border with Russia. These are the last territories before directly threatening the Russian territory. So, in addition, the location, the access to Middle East, because Mediterranean Sea, that's what it means. It's Middle East. Mm. It's Egypt, it's uh, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Jordania. So, yeah, that's that's a prime... uh, well, prime importance. There's another, there's another important point. Ukraine. I mean, there, there's a saying in Russia that you, Russia was born in Ukraine. This is Slavic territory. Yeah. As far as the Russians are concerned, either occupying fully, economically speaking, or splitting Ukraine down the middle, is doing so is occupying Russia. Yeah, because on the other half. You've then totally separated the Balkans from Russia. I mean, they consider the Balkans to be Slavic too. So, beyond even whatever their their narratives in terms of geopolitical strategy, you can imagine how they they think of. They don't actually consider these things. But the reason I'm bringing this up is that the backlash. I mean, the pressure will be on Putin to do something in response. And well, there is a mirror this situation in recent history which is the way that Hitler behaved and the uh, the behavior of Chamberlain towards Hitler in England and everything they were all you know it's okay you do whatever you want do whatever you want you know you know and then all of a sudden it was like okay no more and you can see that America has recently gone into a long list of countries and been messing around and is encroaching on territories and expanding and expanding and expanding and I, I don't think that Putin would be stupid enough to not see that the CIA's involvement is tantamount to a what was at that time a, a ground invasion of troops. I mean, the CIA going in and putting in a puppet government on his back door, or actually a side door maybe, mm-hmm. is tantamount to an invasion by the U.S. or the EU, and there's no way that he can really not do something about it. Now, he might not simply just walk in there with some military. He might not do that. He might actually let these factions, because like I was saying earlier, is basically it's like Neil was saying, a bunch of different factions. Everybody's playing games. He might say, hold on a second. Go ahead and play those games until the people really get a lesson of what, it, what, what really happened and then comes in and maybe he saves the day or whatever it is. But there's no way. I mean, like I said, it's a bridge too far. They are extending themselves way too far right there. You know, and he can't. He, he's there's no way that he's not going to have a response for this, yeah. possibly in the future, very soon. Well, yeah. The thing yeah. is, I think the. Uh, I mean, like we were saying, they, they they've been demonizing Putin all the way through, leading up to the Olympics, all the way through the Olympics. They didn't go to the Olympics. Obama, all these different heads, they actually boycotted it. I mean, it's ridiculous, you know. It's childish. It's completely childish, and they actually, in 2012. They boycotted all of you, all European leaders. Boycotted the 2012 European Football Cup, which was held in Ukraine and Poland, and they all publicly and in the papers all said we're not going because because he had, Timoshenko was Timoshenko was in jail, and they were blaming the current yeah. president for for maintaining her in jail, and they weren't going to go. I mean, it was so, such petty crap, you know. And 
So there's a kind of precedent there, and they're doing exactly the same thing, yeah. and it's so childish and so so idiotic. It just it's embarrassing for them, but they seem to think it's yeah. true. <coughs> but the other thing about Ukraine is Ukraine produces is is has the equivalent production of wheat and grain as the U.S. Yeah. Midwest. The, the breadbasket of yeah. the U.S. is is the same in, in quantity in, in, in Ukraine in terms of breadbasket. There's just kind of really rich soil or something yeah, in the eastern U- Ukraine that is like the most fertile soil in the world and it produces very high yields of all sorts of crops. And I mean, they're talking now about, you know, when you get the IMF into a country like that and bring in austerity measures, start closing down factories, people lose their jobs, you know, people, you know, inflation goes way up and stuff. It just tends to ruin a country, you know, and this, Ukraine supplies an awful lot of food, relatively speaking, for the world. And if that was taken out of the equation, if it was dropping that, given the kind of precarious situation with all the floods and weird weather these days, that could push things yeah. over the edge. These people could actually, in their greed and their lust for power and hunger and just, you know, unfettered, mindless, kind of like more, 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 they could end up precipitating or causing some kind of a, a food crisis, you know, and just go, oops, well, you know, uh, sorry, yeah. something- not our fault. There's something else. Uh, it might be a motivation as well, uh, a reason why Western powers are interested in Ukraine. You mentioned the oil. You mentioned the geostrategic uh, location. Ten years ago, food was uh, less important than now. But uh, for years, we had food shortage and uh, price are going through the roof. And uh, controlling a country that uh, produces uh, tons and tons of wheat, wheat, yeah, I mean, that's a lot of resource. That's money. Yeah, I'm sure Monsanto would love to get in there. Oh, yeah. Take it over. But it's interesting. There's another. There's There's been a revolution, protest-type revolution-type thing going on in Thailand for quite a while now as well, and it's only marginally reported in the, in the, in the media. But um, it's just uh, interesting to note that <clears throat> in Thailand there's essentially a a puppet regime of the U.S., and the protests that are going on there are very, you know, large and widespread protests are being condemned by the U.S. Uh, as undemocratic. Well, uh, just ordinary people protesting. Are they? Yes. I'm not so sure. They are. What's I read going on in Thailand. Um, well, there was, uh, up until 2006, there was the, the, the guy in power who was deposed in a military coup in 2006 uh, Thaksin Shinawatra, uh, he was absolutely a U.S. puppet, and he was deposed in military coup and fled the country. But he's, you know, still exerting influence. He was Council of Foreign Relations guy and all this kind of stuff. And his sister is now the prime minister. But uh, the protests that have been going on, there have been people protesting in the streets, and and essentially government or unknown uh, individuals have been going around and shooting. Today, actually, they shot a, a girl dead, a young girl dead. At a protest uh, in Thailand, and these protests have been the little that the U.S. has said about them. They've said that they are undemocratic and they've condemned them. So, well, there, yeah, but the actual protest leaders have themselves said we are protesting to remove democracy in Thailand and replace it with a wise council of elders. Yeah. Well, and, and the person who is the, the leader of this movement is a royalist in Thailand who's backed by the military. 
Yeah. I, I might need to check my facts on this, but well, that's, that's, as, as far no, as I saw it, I no, thought that's that, all true. But that doesn't mean uh, when when you redefine the term democracy as it has been, mm-hmm. uh, as as it plays out according to the to the West. Sure, you can imagine people would say we don't want your democracy yeah. anymore. The, the Iraqis don't want America's freedom and democracy either. You know what I mean? And simply because I mean it's kind of complicated, but simply because the military. Or, or involved, or people are saying, you know, we want to establish some other form of government in this day and age. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's, you know, because no. democracy has been turned on its head, type of yeah. thing, you know. If a, a regime led by a white junta, white generals, and or white monarchy, it's not necessarily bad. The point being is, it's never actually the people. under a real democracy anyway. What we're talking about oh. is like basically oligarchy, sometimes fascism. You know, and so the democracy as a term basically is almost meaningless these days. I mean, American democracy, Thai democracy, it's all BS anyway. It's an interesting concept. But uh, this it might be nice to try. Should it. be applied. <laughs> I, I'll need to check my facts, oh dear. Because I, my understanding so far was that in 2009, there was a popular uprising. The red shirts came into power. Well, the red shirts is what the protest movement was called. And that's what got Thaksin back, because he himself had been ousted in a coup. He's not able to come back into the country, and that's why his sister is currently ruling. Yeah. But she was democratically elected, so to speak. So to speak. And they're trying to oust her now, her with a counter-movement that has military support and Western support. I'm not too sure about that. Do you go look into that guy, Thaksin Shinawatra. I have, I have. He's a, he's a well, he was a puppet. I know he's a CFR and all that, but I know he's another tycoon. But remember, in this world, it's really the battle of the oligarchs. And is there an oligarch that has any anything to differentiate him from the other oligarchs in any given country? Thaksin, it seemed to me, well, was well, actually using his power and wealth to help the largely peasant agricultural classes in Thailand. And this current movement is a middle class um, people in the cities who are occupying buildings, just as we're seeing in the Ukraine. Well, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's a good. Well, that's what I mean. The, the majority of people who actually live in the countryside, yeah, don't support. Well, it's I mean, uprising, so to speak. Yeah, we'll have to look into that. That's a topic for another show, yeah. I suppose. Yeah, it, it's hard because I've seen I've seen very convincing. Uh, how do you say? Uh, 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 very convincing reports and analysis on those reports from people who are, you know, they really look and dig deep into protest movements all over the world. Mm-hmm. And there's actually a current spat going on between two particularly uh, sort of high-profile alternative journalists um, concerning Thailand. And I haven't got it sorted out yet, but each one is saying, no, 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 the protest movement is... The coup, and the other one saying, "No, no, no, it's the other way around." But it's not. In addition, it's not black it's and not white. Black and white. You no. have popular movements that start as genuine ones and that get infiltrated <laughs> along the process. Process. Yeah. So some, sometimes both people are right. The one who says yes, popular movement, it's true, or it was in the beginning, yeah. and the other one who says, "Yeah, no, it's corrupted, it's infiltrated." He's right too. Yeah. Uh, because it's morphs along with time. Yeah. yeah, it's not always black and white in the sense that it's not always that you know. One side is good and one side is bad. You can, like you said, you can have um, uh, when you have a third party like the like the U.S. watching, 
they can say, well, either of these two people fighting will do us, you know. We'll just fight our time and see which one, you know, which one edges it, you know. But we'd, we'd take our, we'd take either, you know. Um, yeah, I think uh, what you say, Neil, was a good summary of uh, the human condition in this 21st century. The only choice we have, politically speaking, is between the the lesser evil oligarch. Yeah. There are oligarchs that totally destroy the people. There are oligarchs that have some rest of compassion and that don't totally destroy the people, like uh, I think Obama I'm, versus Putin, and uh, you have to choose the, I think the lesser evil. I it's not, not even quite as good but as you're that. Gonna choose. I think you're being optimistic. <clears throat> I think it's a, a choice between the oligarch who is... Uh, who just has a, a limited ambition for greed. <laughs> he's just not ambitious enough to, to, to rob and murder everybody. Um, yeah, he's just, he's, that's uh, a good leader. And that's the good one. We picked the one who isn't thinking big enough with his killing and raping <laughs> and murdering, you know? Um, I think that the one big problem, and it's kind of like you see this control of the discussion, which I find a little bit uh, pointless, which is the, the discussion of what, which political system. You kind of, and, and every time you talk about politics, you talk about... There's a democracy, or there's this, or that, and the other thing. And it's like, even the best government, it doesn't really matter, because the psychopaths, the minute they get into the government, they'll ruin any type of government. Yeah. I mean, a monarchy can be totally fine if it's a good monarch. But the minute you put a psychopath in, and then everyone's like, oh, they're oppressing us, monarchy's evil, we get rid of the monarchy, we put in some sort of republic, and it goes fine until a bunch of psychopaths get into the Senate, and then all of a sudden, it's just as bad as it was under the monarchy, and then you say, oh, well, let's get rid of our Republican stuff, let's become a democratic society, completely democratic, and then it goes fine for a while until the psychopaths get in, yeah. and then they ruin that too. So, I mean, you could, it doesn't matter. The, 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 the political system absolutely has abs- no bearing whatsoever. Any political system will work as long as it's being managed by good and bene- benevolent people. But the yeah. minute a psychopath gets in there, boom. Nosedive. What you, did, yeah, shit, what you describe it. is a polarization in action. And uh, as Lubosevsky uh, wrote, basically uh, all those words in ism, liberalism, republicanism, mm. democratism, or uh, whatever, these are only ideologic facades behind which the psychopathic mind hides. Yeah. Speaking of which... <clears throat> The origins of communism, socialism, Bolshevism. Um, I mean, we're talking about Ukraine, but this really goes to the Russian Revolution, both the one that happened in 1991 and then way back in 1917. Mm-hmm. George Soros, for example, he had he's got numerous NGOs, but I think they all come under the umbrella of his open society yeah. group. Yeah. Did you know that by 1992, Soros NGOs were responsible for printing all the school textbooks for the population of 150 million Russians, well, let's say 70 million children. And they were rewritten. The communist propaganda to the textbooks would have like four pages or something on the heroic deeds of American presidents in the 20th century, mm. and four lines on the Battle of Stalingrad. Mm-hmm. This is the extent to which something changed in Russia that, the, that what we're seeing in, happening in Ukraine now was attempted in Russia in the 90s. 
And this is where the discussion of Putin comes in because he has he as far as I can see he was trying to at least retard or reverse a lot of this. Russia was devastated. Oh yeah. Now the official Western narrative is the Soviet Union collapsed. It just under the weight of sheer corruption, etc., etc. It just collapsed. That brought you down. That's not the case at all. No, because I mean the Soviet Union from its inception. From the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, was a uh, an animal that was kind of created. It was an animal of the of the West of um, of Wall Street, essentially. And this is fairly well documented that the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917 was essentially Lenin and Trotsky uh, was funded by Wall Street bankers, and they did it because, um, like I said before. Even then, America was uh, a growing superpower and they did not want any other kind of United States or any other superpower in the world uh, to contest that. They had plans for kind of control and domination of the world and they didn't want Russia as a big enough place to, uh, the Russian Empire at that time was a big enough place to to stand in opposition to the US and they didn't want that. So they seeded this kind of uh, Bolshevik revolution, which was just a ridiculous idea of, you know, everybody's equal, and, I mean, at that time, even Gurdjieff, or not Gurdjieff, but Ospensky, has written on this, his experiences around the time of the Russian Revolution, what the revolutionaries, these revolutionaries who were part of the Bolshevik Revolution, uh, their ideology was just so, they were nihilists, they were nihilists, you know, they were just nonsensical, inane, just destructive, ideology that made no sense at all. It was anti-human, essentially, you know, and it was spread by Lenin and Trotsky. And when Lenin and Trotsky arrived in the, in, in Russia in, in 1917, they were, they were shunted in there by Lenin, by the Germans, and Trotsky by the Americans, by, by bankers on Wall Street, some of whom were Jews. Uh, and they, um, they sent Trotsky and Lenin in and at that point in 1917, there already had been a revolution. They came in and had another revolution. We're going to have another one. And uh, they had one later in October of 1917. But Trotsky was funded. He arrived in, in Russia uh, with $10,000 in gold, uh, although he had no money uh, of his own. He left the U.S. on a boat with this money and with a U.S. passport given to him by uh, Wilson and the president, and um, they arrived, and at that point, the Bolsheviks only had uh, control of parts of Moscow and St. Petersburg, or St. Petersburg um, and they had maybe at most 10,000 people. I don't know what it was then, there probably maybe 100 million Russians, and there was 10,000 of them, and they then led this ridiculous revolution, which essentially deconstructed all of Russia essentially ruined the economy, ruined the ruined industry because at that time, previously under the czars, the Russian the Russian Empire, in terms of its technology and its industry and its uh, its economy, was at least uh, as good and as uh, technologically advanced as um, as the U.S. or or Britain or wherever else. Uh, but it was completely destroyed uh, by this revolution, and after that. Um, through the 20s and in the 30s and stuff with the, the Hoover uh, mission and the various uh, pl- 
plans to to pick up or to to retool the Russian economy was entirely financed by the US and uh, in terms of money in terms of technology and and even all and passed through the second world war and after the second world war it was the same thing so uh, the communist communist Russia was entirely entirely created. controlled created and controlled by the US um, and that's obviously completely the opposite of what you're told in textbooks and stuff yeah. and what the whole historical narrative tells you, but that's yeah. the facts of the matter based on, uh, you know, actual official documents and, and paper yeah. trails of money being transferred. I mean, if you get into Nazi Germany there as well, about money being transferred from the US, from banks and Wall Street directly into the account, an account, uh, a slush fund account owned by uh, Heinrich Himmler. During the Second World War, and all of the kind of technology that the Germans, that the Nazis needed. But first of all, Hitler's right to power financed. This is all again, documented by paper trails and stuff. Uh, Hitler's, the fall of uh, the, the German government uh, in, in you know, previous 1933 and the rise of Hitler was all financed with money from the US. And the technology to actually uh, equip the, the Nazis with the Nazis' military machine was made possible by American corporations in terms of the technology to refine uh, oil. And well, the Nazis were using a kind of synthetic oil from coal, but the technology to refine it to make it possible for to make it useful or usable as aviation fuel. The technology for that came from an American corporation uh, that was the only one who knew how to do it at the time. Yeah. So there's all this evidence that even during the Second World War, well, the Nazis were being financed. They were being financed at the very same time. As early as 1942, Alan Dulles was in Switzerland arranging meetings with Richard Galen, the head of the Nazi intelligence, to cooperate on um, basically taking over their network mm-hmm. when such a time arrives. And of course, three years later, Operation Paperclip, and it was just, oh, we'll just lift the actual people, the technology, yeah. the research they've been carrying out, including the sick stuff, and we'll just transplant it in the U.S. and in Latin America, mm-hmm. lock stock the whole lot. But this kind of that's at least you know it's kind of well known at least in alternative circles. But what was new to me was the extent to which that happened in the beginning of Soviet Russia. <clears throat> According to historian Anthony Sutton, there would have been no Stalin's five-year plans without American, British, and German companies. Mm-hmm. Russia was totally devastated by the civil war just after the, the Bolshevik Revolution. And Ford, um, that's one company that comes to mind now, but uh, all the big names went in and actually rebuilt the plants, rebuilt the industry. Mm. It's, what, it, what it reminds me of, you could apply what we know today from the shock doctrine about how when a crisis comes up, either contrived or naturally, you go in mm-hmm. and you buy up Mm-hmm. and you retool, control, yeah. and you, you structurally adjust, to use the economic term they use. Mm. But this was literally and physically done in Russia. Uh, so it, it just blows your mind. This is supposed to be the, the great enemy, the, the great, great, the great enemy, you know? The great bi, kind of bipolar, kind of <laughs> bipolar, right? uh, you know, polarized world. You know, you have these two great superpowers when it was all complete fiction and was being organized by, essentially financed, you know? It's like a boxer, you know, and... Uh, well, the, a manager, you know, working two sides of a ring, you know, two corners of the ring, and uh, 
people people well the question the question arises why i mean that's an almighty undertaking why would they do that well money money of course control but in in the years leading up i mean it was a couple of decades really of unrest in russia but it was relatively tame to what happened after it was the war the first world war that created the situation people were actually going hungry there was the initial revolt in St. Petersburg, and people started to self-organize into little Soviets. A lot of the terminology that became crystallized afterwards was being used by people pre-Bolsheviks. Mm-hmm. By Soviets, they just meant a local council of people mm-hmm. would manage the local area. And I think it was this the terrified, what terrified, yeah. that was they sought to subvert. Mm-hmm. In between that, February yeah. 1917, and October 1917, Lenin and Trotsky are literally shipped in mm-hmm. with the money. The first ever free and democratic, in quotes, elections held in Russia happened that summer. Mm-hmm. There had been an interim government put in power, just like we see now in Ukraine, and they held elections in the first, well, the first Duma post-February um, 1917 revolution. Mm-hmm. Yes. As the results were being called out, the Bolsheviks got at most 25% of the vote. Lenin just got up in his chair and declared the meeting over. He had guards posted around the doors. And that was it. From then on, it became, a, it was a Bolshevik counter-revolution. It was a coup. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That's the way I understand it. I think that's the way Douglas Reed presents the, this period of history in uh, the controversy of Zion. There were two revolutions in Russia. And uh, the first genuine people uproar against the, the war, mostly. And we know how the PTBs uh, base their power and their, their agenda on wars, on permanent war. So in February 1917, you have this spontaneous revolution, people revolution, and the movement will be subverted, infiltrated, and twisted in October 1917 after infiltration, polarization of the initial movement, to what would lead to uh, decades of uh, what is called communism. Yeah, it's, uh, you left an impression of that they, at that time anyway, they took a kind of a, a movement among ordinary people that, to rebel against, you know, inequality and, you know, poverty and, and but not even thought about by a war exactly it wasn't even in good times people just had enough food in the house and could you know keep themselves warm that kind of thing there wouldn't have been that it was in extreme in extreme situations where they kind of like were clamoring for change and uh, these uh, you know oligarchs or you know controllers the elite um, looked at that and as you said were a bit perturbed by it and took it and ran it off the rails in terms of took it and made it into an extreme and grotesque version of itself under Lenin and Trotsky where you just had uh, nihilism, you know, you just had like basically people were forced to kind of just, you know, the great equalizer was we'll all do nothing, then we'll all be equal. Nobody will work, nobody will, you know what I mean? It just destroyed the society and that was their, you know, uh, perversion of this idea. Yeah. of wanting some equality and, and less abuse from the powers that be, uh, they took it and distorted it, you know, and, and, and then later that image of it has been used in the West to say, well, listen, do you want this? Look at what happened in Russia. 
you know, this is what communism would give you. This is why we must fight against it. Well, the message between the lines is, this is what happens when you, the little people, yeah, are in exactly. control. Yeah. Look at 60 million people dead. You, you can't, you, you kill each other because it's the jungle out there. You need us. And it opens the door to this uh, simplistic dualism where you can claim, look, democracy is a less worse system of all. See, you have two economic or ideologic models. You have democracy in the West and you have communism in Russia. You see how Russia is horrible? So, you see, you have the proof that democracy is the best system. Now, inevitably, when you go here, you end up saying, well, who are the bankers? Now, you mentioned, Joe, that some of them are Jews. Mm. And when people start discussing this, it kind of, there's a black and white issue that comes up. Well, they're bankers and they're Jews, so that's it. It's Jews, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah. it's not. I well, mean, I think I it's mean, accidentally that they're Jews. I think that, yeah. See, some of them are. I mean, I'm talking about the big names involved, say, in what happened in Russia. But then others weren't. Yeah. Um, the whole kind of Jewish banking situation goes back a long time, and maybe you could take it back to the Rothschilds and stuff, and... You know, it could be just a, circum- a victim, victims of circumstance in a certain sense that, that, that uh, you know, they, they happen to be Jewish. And, but when people get to that level of power and control, if they have an ideology, generally speaking, they'll use it to their own advantage. They won't, they're not necessarily invested in it, like we're protecting the Jews and I'm really for the Jewish cause and this is why I'm doing it. Therefore, I can claim that I was simply misguided if I did something wrong by, you know, destroying a whole country. I was doing it in the interest of, you know, Judaism or something. I mean, they they... You know, they had this goal of an, an Israeli state and stuff, and, but I think that always came second to their desire, you know, maybe it's just human nature, their desire for wealth and power, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, it's a difficult, difficult one to kind of tease out because there, are, there were Jewish bankers and there were, you know, they did have a lot of power and maybe they, they still do today, you know. But it's that whole question of to what extent does their religion, their nominal religion, uh, suggest a ulterior motive or that they have an agenda that is based on their religious beliefs <coughs> rather than simply their need for or their desire for money. Well, I mean, power. if they were Christian, would we, would we say that, uh, you know, if one of these big power bankers was a Christian, would we say that, oh, Christians are trying to take over the world? Uh, some of us some of us do say that, actually, because <laughs> Christians really do have, you know, the Vatican. But... I think that if you know those that are Jews, I think that it's kind of irrelevant that they're that they're Jewish in any way mm. when it comes to it. I mean, an oligarch is an oligarch. It doesn't matter where he was born or what his name is or mm. whether or not he you know prays at a, a Baptist church or a synagogue. I think ultimately it doesn't matter. He should be seen as like the uh, from his oligarch hat, not from exactly yeah. religious or racial hat. I mean, I mean, there was a Jewish banker. Uh, what was his first name? I can't remember his first name. Jacob, Jacob, uh, Jacob, no, Jacob Schiff, uh, end of the 18th century, into the, or 19th century, into the 20th century. And he, uh, in about 1905, he financed, this is official, uh, officially, official history, that uh, he financed, he's a Wall Street banker, he came from Germany, and he, he was a Wells Fargo uh, bank and a few other things. Um, but he had a lot of money, and he was Jewish, and he was very uh, outspoken about his Zionist beliefs and decrying the persecution that the Jews had suffered throughout history, etc. And uh, he financed, in 1905, there was a, Rus- a Russo- Russo- 
Japanese war mm-hmm. lasted only a year and uh, between the Russian Empire and the Japanese Empire. And he sent $200 million at the time, which is lots of billions these days, uh, to, the, to the Japanese. And it's said that he did it because it was a grudge against the, Ru- the Russians, because the Russian czars, because they had persecuted, as far as he's concerned, persecuted the Jews. Nice to have two hundred million dollars to throw at that. Throw yeah, at a, throw at an ideology. Yeah. But, but you know, of course, it influenced him of the geopolitics of the time as well, and I'm sure he made a lot of money off it as well. So you know, that's one of, of the ideas developed by Douglas Reed that the, all this communism thing that was instigating mostly by uh, Ashkenazi Jews. One of the reasons was uh, taking revenge against Russia because of, of its behavior concerning uh, Jewish population. And uh, the timing is interesting because uh, 1917, you have the Ashkenazi orchestrated uh, Bolshevik revolution. Four years before, you have the creation of the, the Fed Bank and the Jekyll Island uh, agreement where the biggest banker in the world basically take over the, the world finance. And... Uh, Two years later, in 1921, you have the Balfour Declaration that is the first big step towards the creation of Israel that a few decades later would be populated mostly by Ashkenazi Jews coming from Russia. Yeah, it, it actually brings us back to Ukraine. I mean, the Tsar Nicholas, uh, his pogroms against the Jews took place in Ukraine yeah. and Poland, the Pale, um, and when you bring it forward a bit, yeah, you mentioned the Balfour Declaration, so there's something going on there. Here you've got the British Empire's interest. Where do they come in? In 1920, Winston Churchill wrote an article that was published in the main, basically the biggest, then biggest Sunday paper in the UK. Zionism versus Bolshevism, a struggle for the soul of the Jewish people. I won't read the whole thing out, but he basically says, explicitly that the Bolshevik Revolution was entirely orchestrated by Jews for diabolical ends. It could not have been a more anti-Semitic tract going by what we're constantly told is anti-Semitic. You couldn't have found more anti-Semitic statements anywhere from Winston Churchill. Yeah, I mean... Now, he, I, I think he was up to something because this is a guy, of course, who represents a whole other clique which had their own secret society what was then known as the, the Milner Group in the UK, which basically represented the top aristocratic families controlling the British Empire, including Cecil Rhodes and others. So uh, he, he's, he's putting that out there as in, oh, the evil is all over there. I'm going to make it nice and black and white for people to understand. This is 1920. This is the kind of thing that was said that led to Hitler's rise. Yes, it seems very linked, but from what I understand in Douglas Reed's writings, the deal was pretty clear. What was proposed to the British Empire during the First World War and to the Western powers, um, it was, uh, okay, we give you the resources to win the war, but in exchange, we want Palestine. And they agreed, so they got the financial resources, and they won the First World War. And three years later, they were giving away Palestine. Yeah, that would make sense. The, 
the conclusion of historian uh, Sutton, Anthony or Anthony Sutton, Anthony Sutton yeah. in Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution, he uses original source documents from government files at the time um, to make the case that the Bolshevik Revolution was entirely funded by bankers for specific purposes. And he addresses, towards the end of the book, he addresses the Jewish conspiracy myth. Okay, he says, yes, a lot of them were Jews, but what about those who were not Jews? Um, it is significant, he writes, that documents in the State Department, U.S. State Department files, confirm the investment of some Jewish bankers, but also non-Jewish bankers. The persistence with which the Jewish conspiracy myth has been pushed, i.e. deliberately, suggests that it may well be a deliberate device to divert attention from the real issues and the real causes. Old Whiteman. The evidence provided in this book, his, his book, uh, Wall Street and the, the Bolshevik Revolution, suggests that the New York bankers, who were also Jewish, had relatively minor roles in supporting the Bolsheviks, while the New York bankers, who were also Gentiles, including Morgan, Rockefeller and Thompson, had actually the major roles in it. What better way to divert attention from the real operators than by the medieval bogeyman of anti-Semitism? Yeah. Knowing that uh, you can be a Gentile and a Zionist, and you can be a Jew and non-Zionist, so I would say if there's a common denominator, I'm not saying there is one, but if there's a common denominator, it's more likely to be an ideologic one, like Zionism, than a religious one, like Judaism. Um, I would go further and say it's more likely to be, the common denominator is more likely to be what we've been saying these last few years, a biological one. They're psychopaths. They have no. They'll say we represent one ideology one day and something else the next. Yeah, and Zionism. They don't actually. Zionism is an ideology that resonates with a with sure. a psychopathy, like other ideologies. Because well, it's a. I don't know how relevant it is. Racist one. But there is the added angle of there's a lot of these sort of uh, wealthy, prominent, uh, fundamentalist Christian Republican type of individuals, right? Yeah. And they are sort of, uh, in some senses, like violent uh, pro-Israel people. And they're even, I think there's a video or something, a recording of them going to like Israel and talking about how it's so wonderful because this is where the end battle is going to take place. And, exactly. And, and there's a lot of these people who think that like bringing the, the, the Bible truth, the reconstitution yeah. of the state of Israel is all about bringing on the Armageddon. So I don't know how, how much that applies to the situation. Well, I think that's a very interesting point. I don't know to, to what extent it applies because it's a almost a foreign way of thinking to me, but some of the most flaming Zionists are Christians. Yeah. Because for those fundamentalists, all is about reenacting or enacting what is written in the Bible. It's a very literal way of taking it, uh, this uh, there's text there's and uh, and part of it is the end. The Armageddon is where Israel and the Jew Jews are being destroyed. So those fundamentalist Christians that are also Zionists are not Zionists because of the what they have at heart is the welfare of Israel, but actually they want the they want the creation and they wanted the development of Israel for it to be eventually fulfilled in order to reach this 
eschatological uh, conclusion right. that fits the biblical, the biblical writings. There's a reason why I bring it up. The reason why I bring it up is that psychopaths, the, the idea of a long-standing conspiracy hatched by psychopaths who are kind of a little bit too impulsive and self-centered and not thinking is, is difficult for me to swallow a little bit. But a cadre of these hyper-fundamentalist, literal world of God, rich people, uh, planning Armageddon, it does at least sound like it could be really possible that this kind of stuff may have been, you know, some part of some sort of secret Christian society. I mean, that for me seems like it might, you know, sort of apply to the situation that these people are actually um, believe that they are in on there's some sort of like I don't want to say the word Illuminati type of stuff, but you know, there's people who go on about like the Illuminati and the Freemasons and all this different stuff, and I don't really buy into it. But if it were true, then I could imagine that situation being an explanation for why things seem to be so planned for such a long period of time. Yeah. I mean, for, a lot of convenient things have happened in the last couple hundred years that almost seem like they were planned. And you're just like, you really fight to, to not go into the whole, it's the Illuminati or something like that. You know, yeah. you know what I'm saying? We have a call here, I think. Hi, do we have a caller on the line? Yes, Charles again. Do you want me to engage again or no? Charles, fire away. You're welcome. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> Incidentally, a brilliant assessment of early Russia and you know, the Wall Street enactment there. It's very good for people to be aware of that, and you guys did a great job. Uh, I just wanted to add... Uh, um, Oh, a thought. You guys are hierarchy more articulate than I am. But uh, this whole thing about Jews and Zionist Jews as opposed to traditional Jews, meaning Torah, which I would equivocate to being a real Jew, and the Talmud, T-A-L-M-O-U-D, being Zionist. And I think... Uh, I'm sorry. I, I just think that's an important thing to bring up because, you know, this Jew word is thrown around and it's, it's actually not very precise because there are Orthodox Jews that I think I, I personally have no problem with Orthodox Jews at all. And if you look at any of the information with them, they're okay. You may buy their religion, you may not, but they're okay. It's the Zionists. Mm -hmm. That that if we're going to talk about Illuminati or anything, it doesn't really matter. The bottom line is look at what they do. Anyways, yeah. that, that's I just don't like this grouping of Jews all together because no, yeah. that that's all I'm saying. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Hey, you know, thanks right. for the show, man. You guys are doing a brilliant show. No worries. Bye, bye, Charles. Thank you're you. Very kind. He brings up a good point. It is. It's very difficult to talk about any situation. I mean, like, you can't even say Christians as well. I mean, on that same topic, I mean, there are so many different types. You know, Catholics, Protestants, or you want to break that down even further, and, you know, you can't use a single word to describe even an entire people. You can't even really say the Israelis. You say, oh, the Israelis are doing X. Well, no, not really. I mean, there's the Israeli government, which is making some sort of decisions, and to what degree, you know, the Israeli population really agrees with and supports it, 
But, but yeah, that kind of black and white uh, painting and, and pigeonholing of people and you know painting them all with the same brush is the kind of thing that leads to you know pogroms and exactly. you know getting the mob to go after one person because they're a Jew or because they're a Christian or or whatever. You know what I mean? That that happens a lot. Like uh, we've been discussing in the kind of alt, uh, alternative theories or right. alternative news or conspiracy communities out there where there there are people who who say it's all about the Jews. And I mean, they're even parodied because they're so kind of hysterical about it. They're even parody word, parodied where they'll be like, oh, he's, he's a, he's a, it's all the Jews, J-O-O-S yeah. uh, guy, you know? Yeah. Because everything, uh, everything is, uh. the Jews did it, you know? And it's ridiculous. You know? And um, it's not true. Yeah. And, and, you know, now we've talked about this uh, eschatological vision carried by some uh, Christian fundamentalist who are Zionists as well. When you keep in mind their objective, you realize how ridiculous equating Zionism and Judaism, Judaism is because ultimately Zionism aims at the destruction of Israel, i.e. destruction of uh, <coughs> and Palestine, i.e. The, the land of Arabs and Jews, Sephardic Jews, who are incidentally the descendant of Isaac and Ismael, the two sons of Sem, hence Semitism. So today, in France, for example, with Yudonet and all that, medias, of course, milk the cow and equate Judaism and Zionism. But in last analysis, Judaism is the ultimate anti-Semitic ideology. Yeah. You mean well, Zionism. 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 Yeah. Well, Zionism. Yeah. Yeah. He said Judaism. I, mean, oh, no. I don't think <laughs> Sorry the Judaism for the is... No. Pretty, no, that Zionism. Pretty, Zionism. Pretty Sorry. simply, Zionism is a political ideology. Yeah. And Judaism is just it a is. religion, like one of many religions, you know? Exactly. And all religions are pretty much evil, but so we're equal opportunity bashers of religion there. But Zionism clearly was a political ideology in the sense that they, they made, you know, cited some references from some fictitious book or something called the Old Testament or the Torah or something, you know, that somebody made up (laughs) and said, this says that we are entitled to a land grab in the Middle East and set up a government there and rule it. And that's that's politics. That's that's geostrategic. Well, I think that goes to what Charles was... Charles said the specific distinction between the Torah and the Talmud. Um, Do you know anything about that, Pierre? Because I think Douglas Reed wrote about that. Yeah. Yeah. Talmud is a writing... Um, that inspires some uh, movements within Judaism, in particular the, the Zionist one, that goes beyond the, the frontier of, Zion, of Judaism, as we said previously. Um, there are, as we say, Talmudist Jews, or Talmudists, that consider this book as the reference book, and uh, this book, compared to the Torah, is very strong on the distinctions between the, Gentile and Goy. Yeah. Uh, no, that's the same. No, Gentiles are... We are, oh, are, are going yeah, here. Between, yeah. between Jews, but more specific. Talmudists in the context, actually. Talmudists, Jews, and Goys. And that's this book that says things like... Uh, so it, basically, it, you can kill a Goy, you can lie to a Goy, you can steal from a Goy, uh, but you cannot do that to a Jew. So it's no, really the quintessence of a kind of a apartheid or xenophobic vision of the world where there is... the which is Some used in service the rest to a of the political world. agenda, which was getting a chunk of land in the Middle East for a, a Zionist state. Which it seems like it began. Can, can I just ask for clarification? So this is a separate religious book from yes. the Torah. Yes, okay. it's totally separate. It's rules. 
And so you, you, you naturally, it's like having two sects. Uh, one sect follows more or less one path, and then there's a separate. Yeah, yeah that, that's why you, uh, people talk about Talmudist Jews. Okay. There's uh, one of the predicaments in the Talmud is that uh, the Talmudic law overrules any national law, which has been a, a bone of contention for centuries, actually. Uh, and probably one of the main roots of uh, anti-Semitism, the main problem was integration. Integrated population, whoever they want, whoever they are, cause no trouble. It doesn't need to program or to all we've seen through centuries. Talmud preached the opposite. Talmud preached non-integration because basically the Talmudist is ruled by the Talmud law. And the the very notion of citizenship in based on the fact that a citizen is ruled by the national law, the notion of a state of right, or état de droit, I don't know. I translate say that. There, so, yeah. There is a problem with the fact that uh, most of the um, leaders of the Bolshevik Revolution were Jews. Okay. You know, I mean, the, the problem is yeah. there's enough in there to fuel yeah. the idea that there's this some kind of Jewish conspiracy, mm-hmm. you know, um, and there's even like you said, you quoted or you mentioned the quote, uh, something that Churchill said that makes it clear that he was aware of the, there being a Jewish movement in places of power to serve their own agenda. And Benjamin is really quite a long time before um, a British Prime Minister who was a Jew himself uh, was Henke was the only Jewish British Prime Minister ever. Um, he said, uh, you never observe a great intellectual movement in Europe in which the Jews do not greatly participate. The first Jesuits were Jews. That mysterious Russian diplomacy which so alarms Western Europe is organized and principally carried on by Jews. That mighty revolution, <clears throat> which is at this moment preparing in Germany, and he was talking here about the Bolshevik revolution preparing in Germany, and which will be in fact a second and greater reformation and of which so little is yet known in England, is entirely developing under the auspices of Jews. Uh, you know, so that kind of thing. I mean, what's strange, actually, is, is you go back to the French Revolution at the end of the 18th century, in the 1780s, and you see that there was a lot of anti-Semitism around them. You know, among the general population, there was a, there was a belief that Jewish people or Jewish groups were involved. I mean, it's, it's one of the most bizarre things, you know, in, in the sense that we're dissing it here as uh, having any real influence on world affairs. But yeah. at the same time, throughout history, over the past so three or four hundred years, you have among popular people, uh, among, among the populace of, of different countries, an awareness, and even among, amongst the political leadership, an awareness, apparently, of there being some kind of Jewish conspiracy and them not being but, happy about it. Here's but, one, one thing. I, I wanted to really get to that out of the way because okay so a couple of points first thing the the jewish people or the israelis i mean let's not necessarily confuse it with the religious aspect of them just say israel or israelis or zionists um they're not fundamentally doing anything that every single other country hasn't done which is a problem yeah it's just totally a problem but it's the situation of um when christians get together and want to grab some land from somebody nobody starts throwing around the word Christian conspiracy, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the Jewish people as a political movement is totally fair. Zionism exerting political power. I mean, when, when, when Zionists go exert political power, it's suddenly a conspiracy 
But when Gentiles do it, of course, it's not. So, I mean, in, in that kind of sense, it's fair to say that it's, it's not quite right. Even if there is a conspiracy of Jews, it's kind of fair because there's a conspiracy of, you know, Everybody. of white money, too. There's a conspiracy of, of all these different people, all these political people, whether psychopath or whatever, are conspiring together, quote unquote, sure. to to affect political change, and and why shouldn't they join well, in the fun the only of thing, everybody else too? I mean, as horrible as it is, they are not doing anything that France didn't do. Totally, France is t- very bad. America did. I mean, complete utter genocide does. of the entire people. France was and to do. is very bad. Britain, I mean, they actually they have at least another good two hundred years of catching up to do before they can even approach the numbers of slaughter, torture, murder of all of these other countries that are basically ruled by white people. So in a certain sense, I mean, yeah, it doesn't there's equate. no Jewish conspiracy. There's just the problem, Jewish political the thing that, force. Okay. Yeah, the thing that fuels it, though, is the idea is, is within Judaism itself, at least whether or not many Jews uh, subscribe to it, but the idea of the Jews being chosen by God and special and apart and that, you know what I mean? And then being such a small group that to apparently set themselves apart from the rest of humanity. You know, Christians don't necessarily do that. Maybe it's just because there's so many Christians. They can't really set themselves apart. But at first, so apparently many. they did, actually. Yeah. yeah. But in it, all fairness, it, they did do that. Early Christian documents do show yeah. that that's really how they operated as well. That they were yeah. different, yeah. yeah. That they were better than everybody. But in the modern world and even, you know, in terms of still practicing Judaic the, the Jewish faith and stuff, and it having those ideas within them, it's just a very bad idea. I mean, even for, and I mean, I hear you blame the kind of Jewish leadership and stuff that, you know, if, for a peaceful world and stuff, you've got to get rid of this idea that. But it's that, not that, a peaceful world. I know, but if you aspire to it type of thing, you know, I mean, if it's meant to be a good religion and stuff, I mean, it's just a bad idea to have any notion that you are better than everybody else in the world, no matter who it is, you know? Yeah, you're right. And I'm going back a little. You mentioned the uh, overrepresentation of Jewish individuals in the, amongst the leaders of the Bolshevik Revolution, and actually, yeah, it's true. And there were Jews, but they were not. There were specific Jews. Zionism is a very recent ideology, political xenophobic ideology that emerged during the 19th century. So it's uh, it's nothing compared to the history of Judaism, millennia. Yeah. This ideology emerged, while at the same time a new branch in Judaism emerged. The Talmudist one composed of Ashkenazi Jews, Eastern Europe Jews, and here we're going back to Ukraine and Russia, interestingly. People, Ashkenazi people, who had nothing to do with uh, Judaism to blood. The Sephardic Jews in Northern Africa and Middle East had been Jews for generation and generation. It was was in their blood. It was their roots, it was their culture, and they had been integrated peacefully in most countries for millennia. All of a sudden, you had this emergence of Talmudism, of Zionism, and of suddenly converted Eastern European Ashkenazi Jews. So, here you start to see a kind of scission between the majority of traditional Sephardic, peaceful, integrated Northern African or Middle Eastern Jews on one side and a minority of Eastern European extraction, Zionist, Talmudist, 
um, integrist Jews, and it's this minority that will instrumentalize the Western powers, Russia, leading to the creation of Israel, and that will throw mostly Sephardic Jews in Israel to further the Zionist scheme. I mean, there's obviously, there's something, I mean, it's a living culture. I mean, the Jewish culture is living. If, if those people want to self-determine themselves as Jews and say, hey, I'm a Jew, and, and, the, and the Jewish people want to welcome them in, um, that's completely their right. And, I mean, it's a young movement and stuff like that, but that's, yeah. in the but end, the Ashkenazi, it's fair. The Ashkenazi Jew was less appealed by the principle of Torah, of the Ancient Testament, mm-hmm. than principle of Zionism and the Talmud. So oh. ideologically speaking, or religiously speaking, these are two very different movements mm-hmm. yeah, within totally. what we call, simplistically, Judaism. Yeah. But I mean, all, all of Judaism, I mean, you can say that someone's raised in, in Judaism, but there are I, plenty of examples of, of Jewish people who are raised within the religion, and as soon as they turned 18, they shagged off and joined something else. So I mean, people choose that ideology, I mean, just in the same way that ultimately people do choose to follow a Christian ideology or any ideology, that is their, yeah. that is their choice, and it's a fair choice to make. And, and it, it, it has seemed to be, at least for certainly in the last you know, 100, 100 or so years, their philosophy seems to be rather successful because, I mean, Israel is obviously now a very powerful state. They did get it. So, um, you know, there's a lot of success there. And, and it's like the Baron von Harkonnen said, nothing breeds, you know, um, contempt and disdain like a popularity. And right now they are popular and, and they do, you know, they, they do lead and, and, and set up in front of many popular and intellectual movements, as the Benjamin Israeli was saying. And so naturally, that's yes. going to you're going to be a little bit like you know envious or angry, or you're going to notice it more because oh they're different and they set themselves apart. But it does seem to be like it's been a successful strategy for them thus far. Just to illustrate well, the magnitude of the scission within what we call Judaism, is that the most flaming anti-Zionist activists are rabbis. Rabbis, rabbis. Yeah. rabbis. Oh, sorry, rabbis. Yeah, yeah, I saw a video made by a bunch of, I guess, I guess they call it Orthodox Judaism or something like that. Yeah, the real, I'm real hardcore the... guys. It was a really good video, um, and we're basically like they went around to, in Israel reading excerpts from this text, and they were asking the person, "Now, who said this?" And they would pick like a popular Israeli former leader or Adolf Hitler, and almost every time the person said Adolf yeah. Hitler. I mean, it was, it was a movie made by, by Orthodox Jews, and it was very informative to know that, um, obviously, uh, not all Jews are together and on board with the Zionist policies. You it's, know? it's one of the great ironies of, of, let's say, of the 20th century, when you think about the, to the extent at which Jewish bankers were involved with other bankers in the funding of the rise of Hitler to power to and, then, and Soviet Russia yeah well but specifically here in terms of Hitler and then what he did to the Jews during World War II and that but that in advance of that these same Zionist leaders um, in league with certain bankers some of whom were Jewish had lobbied for a Jewish homeland yeah. In 
in the Middle East and amongst Arabs of a completely different um, religion, and they 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 started emigrating there and forcibly evicting the Palestinians in the 30s, in the 20s and 30s, and then while that's happening, you know, the British cede Palestine to to the Zionists, and they start pushing, trying to get Jews to go there, and a lot of Jews don't want to go there because they say, well. I live in Germany or I live in America. Why do they want to put me in the Middle East for so not Yeah, and I've been here, my ancestors have been here 200 years. Right, so here's where the conspiracy comes in, or if you want to call it just irony, a sad irony, is that to the extent to which Jewish bankers are funding Hitler, and he then does what he does, the, the Holocaust does what he does to Jews in the Second World War, which then is the main driver of emigration of Jews from Europe and elsewhere to this land that the previous Zionists had stolen, had got the Brits to give to them. You know what I mean? That's a, that's a pretty harsh way to go about getting your little slice of land, essentially sacrificing the lives of, um, you know, playing a part, if unwittingly, or if you want to be conspiracy, wittingly, in, this, in the death of millions of your co-religionists as a way to get them to go to this land that you have created all based on some ideology. But it's not, like we've been saying, it's not just ideology. Uh, it's, you know, a lot of it was to do with, you know, basically wealth and greed and psychopaths and power and politics. But then for that to happen, and then to get the little slice of land at this great sacrifice, and then to start doing to the local population what was done to you, you know, in, in the Second World War, it's just, the whole thing is just so, but it's it's so horrible and stupid and such a terrible... But it's an irony. It's an irony. It's an irony. It's the golden rule. Do unto others that which they did unto you. Yeah, and, you know? The, wait a minute. That, is, that's a perversion. It's do not do unto others. <laughs> no, but we see every, all throughout history that the golden rule of everybody is as soon as you get some power... You know, um, just do what was done to you, basically. People, the oppressed love their oppressors and can't wait to follow in their example. So, I mean, it's perfectly in line with everything you've ever seen before. What Joe exposed a few seconds ago is a good summary of uh, Douglas Reed theory. Basically, for Douglas Reed, the main outcome of First World War was the Balfour Declaration, either the principle of the creation of a Jewish state, Israel, and the outcome of the Second World War was the actual creation of Israel. In both cases, the Balfour Declaration happened a few day, a few years after the First World War, and the creation of Israel happened a few years after the end of Second and World War. The, well, pro- like the, the problem no- with that is the non-conspiracy angle to that is that. Is politics and land grabs and yeah, control and the great game and control of oil, which had just in the pre- years previous to, you know, the Balfour Declaration, had come online as the driver, the major driver of of industrial, uh, sure. you know, industry and stuff, and the need for countries to secure access to oil and their oil having been found in the Middle East. And hey, it's a good idea if we have a little outpost yeah. here of people who are. I think in all fairness, in our there are camp, some, you know? some slightly alterated interpretations of those particular events that uh, to whatever extent Jewish bankers may have contributed to the ultimate rise of Hitler, um, I certainly don't think that they, they planned in any way whatsoever 
the Holocaust. I think that that's. Uh, I think that uh, maybe they uh, they didn't they didn't estimate properly the absolute and utter insanity oh, they of care. the Nazi Party uh, at the time, and I think that it's entirely possible that there have may may have been a lot of. Uh, additional support from the anti-Semitic elements or the the pro-Armageddon elements, who said, "Oh, they want their own homeland. Well, let's get in on this." Of course, there's a and, and goaded the whole situation and poked it and poked it because there was, of course, a lot of poking yeah. uh, going on with Nazi Germany at the time from a lot of wealthy, powerful uh, white men, basically. Yeah, I mean, there's two ways to look at it. One of them is that the conspiracy, like, it was planned all along, which doesn't seem like you were saying earlier on about the whole idea of psychopaths not really being able to plan long-term and just reacting in the moment. Oh, now things have changed, let's go this way. But it's always from an entropic, pure greed point of view and whatever suits us and screw the people type thing. The people aren't really concerned if we can move this bunch of people in this direction. And if they all get killed, oh, well, whatever, there's lots more. You know, uh, uh, it's it's more of a a reaction, you know, problem reaction yeah, kind of situation, yeah. and and I mean in that sense, that's the more rational way to look at it. I think that it was just psychopaths in power just doing what they do and spun and, out of control. And yeah, I mean there is evidence that certain Zionists did collaborate with the Nazis to move Jews to to save Jews by moving them to Israel. Yeah. You know, and then you put that in, in context of, you know, 20 years earlier, they had created the homeland right. and they needed to put some Jews in there. I mean, you can see how some people say, ah, I smell a conspiracy, you know, but more likely is that they were just, you know, serving their own interests. And ultimately, like we've been saying throughout the whole show, is that people don't matter to these psychos in power. They're just tools to be used, you know, right. and people really need to think, I think, about or contemplate the way that people in power today, like the elite of this world, the way that they view ordinary people and the world that they kind of grow up in and the worldview that they get from a very early age. I mean, there are people who are brought up in these families, these elite, powerful families. And by the time kids are like able to start, you know, reading and writing and thinking, they're already absorbing ideas about the world. And they're being groomed to be leaders of the world. And they start, you know, by the time they're teenagers and stuff, they're already involved in these kind of groups and societies that train them in a specific way to look at the world as their playground, you know. And that is so divorced from the way the average person in the street. Right views the world. They just view the world as like their little local community and stuff and the world's a big place. And, but it's so divorced the way this, the elite and the, pro, um, the progeny of the elite uh, are, are brought up to view the world as to be like almost like an alien race, you know, yeah. like in terms of your perception of the world. And that's the big problem, you know, because you just have two completely different perspectives. Right. One between one uh, held by a small elite group and the re- the other view, the normal view of the world held by the 99.99%. And it's, I mean, yeah, it's a recipe for disaster, you know, in, in that sense, because these people are totally divorced from any normal human kind of feeling and interaction or identification with the life of the ordinary person in the street. And they're just, they're seen as ignorant, poor, ignorant people that need us to organize their lives for them by the million. And we must take decisions for them and move people around and it's their responsibility they feel responsibility to to take decisions that will affect millions of people at once and that's fine leadership is fine if it's benevolent Mm. if you add the ingredient of psychopathy and pure greed 
Well, then you're screwed big time. We're all Word. screwed big time. And also, commonly held is the belief that this vision furthered by elites is monolithic. And uh, as mentioned previously, the fight between EU and US about the control of Ukraine showed that the psychopathic elites don't necessarily always cooperate to screw the people. Basically, the main driver is their own interest. So they cooperate if it serves their interest. And uh, if we think about the U.S.-Israel relationship, it's quite similar. They both use each other. The Israeli Zionist psychopathic leader used the U.S. to back up their Israeli and their territorial expansion and their genocide against Palestinian. But the U.S. used the, Israel, the psychopathic U.S. leaders used the psychopathic Israeli leaders to have an outpost in the Middle East and to have a hold on the local resources, particularly oil. Yeah. All right, we're going to leave it there for this week, folks. Um, we hope you enjoyed the chat. Keep an eye on what's going on in Venezuela, because that could be up next for yeah. regime change regime one of these change. days. And, you know, what can you do about it? I don't know. Just keep watching. Nothing. That's about as far as Nothing. we can go. Just watch it and be horrified and, and see the world as you it know. Is. Talk about it as well. The people who truth listen. is kind of its own reward <clears throat> in the end. Yeah. And, you know. Also shoving it down other people's throats. No. No. No, that's not no, a reward. I don't okay. think that's I'll fun give, or, or very that effective. I think that even on Facebook. No, maybe a little bit. Oh, once in a while. Well, you gotta get. How can you not be riled up? Well, you gotta when, speak when about William Hague says Russia must not interfere. In Ukraine's <laughs> U.S. can. Russia cannot. BDI. Do as I say, not as I do. Yeah. So when you get riled up, just, uh, you know, yeah, post about yeah. it somewhere. Just get it out there. It doesn't have to be pushing it on people. Just, yeah. And the truth shall set you free. Yes. Um, well, that's really not historically backward. <laughs> the truth but will probably We hope. That's yet to, yet to be proven, but uh, well, watch this space. It's a theory. <laughs> All right, folks, we'll, uh, like I said, we'll leave it there for this week, and we'll be back next week. Are we back? We don't know who's on We don't know week. who's on next week. It's, it's, it's a, a surprise. It's a surprise. So, Mystery. yeah, watch this space. Uh, thanks for all our listeners, to all our listeners and our chatters, and have a good Bye-bye. Bye.